0: Chag Samech, everyone. So we made it fast the first night. <laughs> I always find the second night particularly challenging because I was uh, spoiled for seven Pesachs in my life. I, I lived in Israel, which means I only had one night. <laughs> so the second night's always a challenge, and uh, that's the reason as to why this thought came to my mind. I thought I would share with you because it also occurred to me, we were um, unpacking some of the boxes in preparation of Pesach, and when my parents sold their home in New York, my, my mother and father uh, divided things from the home up, and I got a lot, of the, a lot of the religious artifacts, and some of them were the old Haggadot that we had in the house. And there was a, not an insignificant pile of Haggadot, appropriately wine-stained, manashevitz. I could still smell it on the cover. And uh, interestingly enough, there was a lot of lipstick on the inside too. I think what happened was, some of my, like my grandparents, my aunts, my great aunts and uncles, during the meal, they would probably, to stop themselves from yawning, they would put the Haggadah against their mouths. So you saw all of these lipstick marks on the inside. But uh, not also um, the particular variety of haggadot were interesting. There were only two kinds of haggadot we had. One was this one. You're all nodding your heads. And the other one was the um, a haggadah that was produced by Maxwell House. Have you seen that one? Had that blue silvery color, you know, on the, on the cover and whatnot. The story behind the Maxwell House haggadah is interesting. Um, it was the brainchild of an advertising executive in the early 1950s. He's a Jewish guy in New York. Maxwell House was concerned because they discovered that their coffee sales plummeted the week before and during Passover. And after a brief survey, they determined that Jews weren't comfortable buying their coffee because they didn't know if coffee beans were chametz or not. For the record, coffee drinking in Europe was not common. People drank a lot of chicory and things like that. People didn't drink coffee the way we drink coffee uh, coming from Russia and Poland. They didn't have it. Okay, So um, they began to produce a bundle. And that was you had matzah, Maxwell House matzah, bundled with Maxwell House Haggadot. And also in the bundle was coffee. And it was simply brilliant. Ever since then, of course, nobody even thinks for a moment that coffee is not kosher the Pesach. It certainly is. Maxwell House became a rigueur symbol in Jewish households um, for generations. And their hug adults still survive. <laughs> it's a remarkable story, uh, twinned with capitalism and some religious demographic quirks of people who didn't come from places where they drank coffee. So last night I was sitting down and I asked myself, what is this? Now it's called the Haggadah. It's called a Haggadah in short because it performs a mitzvah. What is the mitzvah that it performs? In the Torah we are told, levincha, that you will tell it to your children. Hence the word Haggadah. But that doesn't really tell the story of this book. And I'm going to take klipa achat, I'm going to take one slice here. And I want to show you tamun. what is buried inside this remarkable document. Remarkable document. Now at the very beginning of the Haggadah, after we get done with the reciting of the Kiddush and uh, the Karpas and all those other things, we recite the four questions. We have the Halach which is not written, by the way, in Hebrew. It's the only part of the Haggadah that's not in Hebrew. The Halach is written in Aramaic. We're not going to discuss that today. Maybe next year we'll do it. Then we go into the four questions. Then we have this weird brief interlude where it talks about where our ancestors came from. There was Abraham, and there was Terach, and they were idol worshipers. And then they went to Israel, then they went to Egypt, and there was Isaac. And then they gave birth to Yaakov and to Esav. And Esav took Mount Seir, and Yaakov went down to Egypt, Te ma'at, with a small number of people. So it tells us the story in, they even give you numbers on the lines here, in the paragraphs, in six lines you have the entire breadth of Jewish history up until that point. And then it stops. And then this is what we read. Ma'aseh b'Rebbe Eleazar, b'Rebbe Yehoshua, Rabbi ben Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Tarfon. These rabbis, Rabbi Eleazar, Joshua, Eleazar ben Azariah, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Tarfon, they were shayun misubim b'Vnei Brak. They were in Bnei Brak. Just outside of modern-day Tel Aviv. And what happened? It was the night of Pesach. And they were sitting at their table. And what were they doing? And they were telling the entire story. All night long. Ad Shabot tamidehen, Until their students came and said to them, Raboteinu, our teachers. It's time to say the Shema. It's the morning. you got to go to shul. You have to go to shul to pray in the morning. What is that doing there? Afterwards, by the way, after that little, that little section, it goes back into a traditional rabbinic kind of flow, quoting sections from the Bible, giving explanations of it. What does it mean they suffered? This is how they suffered. They came forth in mighty numbers. This is what it means they came forth in mighty numbers. Then we go into the plagues. It's all based in the biblical narrative, except this. Why? Why is that there? Who cares about five rabbis who are staying up all night long telling the story until their students come and tell them, you got to go to shul. The story of the Haggadah emerges for us as a book, because when the Israelites left Egypt, you understand they didn't have a Haggadah in their hands. You know that, right? Okay, Maxwell, the house or not, they didn't have a Haggadah. When Joshua, as we read in the Haftarah this morning, when Joshua crossed over into the Promised Land with the Israelites, they didn't have a Haggadah, okay? The Haggadah that we have in our hand is a byproduct of something that began perhaps in 700 of this current era, so about 1,300 years ago. And what the Jews at that time were living through is important for us to understand, First of all, they had lived through and experienced the destruction of the Second Temple and their exile throughout the entire world. They also saw at that very time, and this is a very significant issue, they also saw at that very time the ascendancy of Christianity. At the time of the Second Temple, Jews numbered perhaps 10% of the world's population. At the time that the Haggadah was written, the Jews were a severely oppressed minority. And Christianity had become an ascendant faith in the world. And Christianity had taken the story of Passover and they had made it their own story. Easter is the only Christian holiday that follows the lunar calendar. It always follows Pesach. Number two... The theology surrounding the redemption of the Israelites, the sacrificing of the Paschal Lamb was taken by the Christian church to represent who they believe is God Jesus. They call him the Lamb of God. It's all from the story of Passover. So those Jews are sitting there 1,300 years ago, and it looks like everything has collapsed on them. It's all over and done. It's gone. Our faith is being plucked away from us and twisted and turned, where our story doesn't belong to us anymore. Our homeland is no longer our homeland. We're an oppressed minority constantly on the run. In 250 years, the Jewish communities of Europe will be decimated by the First Crusade. In the Rhine Valley, one in three Jews would be murdered. As Menachem Begin pointed out to Jimmy Carter, they weren't decimated during the First Crusade, they were tertiated. Hako mitmotet, as they would say. It was all collapsing. And so they put this little story inside the Haggadah. And what is it telling us? It is, the technical term is, it's a polemic. But you know what the real word is? It's a telegraph to themselves and to us, the generations that would follow centuries and centuries afterwards about the hidden meaning of what they wanted Jews to understand about themselves. First of all, we are told that no matter how knowledgeable or learned or wise you are, you have to tell the story, first of all. And these rabbis were amongst the most learned and knowledgeable of all of them. And so they must tell the story. The second point is, and this is the most important point, when the students come to their door and they knock, and they say, you gotta go to shul. The sun has risen and you have to go to shul and say the Shema, what are they saying? What does the Shema say? Why the Shema? Because it is saying, that the Lord of the people of Israel is the only God. They are saying to ourselves that no matter what people may take of the story, it is our story. And this God is our God. No matter what everyone else in the world is telling us, this is the truth that we believe. That's why they had to say the Shema in the story. They went to a shul. They said the Shema because these are the most Jewish things in the world that the storyteller could imagine that Jews, in fact, would do. And as they stood all night and they told the story over and over again, what were they also saying? That the work is never done. That although from the outside it may seem that all has collapsed, that our story is unraveling as much as we seem to be unraveling the person who wrote this story is telling us that the work itself is never done. That of telling it, of living it, and of believing it. As it would be said much later on, <speaking in Hebrew> that by your building you will be comforted. As the Zionists famously said at the turn of the early past century, that they came to the land, lihi banot v'livnot. To build and to be built. We tell these stories. We open the Haggadah. And when you speak to your family and your friends on this evening, you tell them that the Haggadah is the great statement of the Jews in believing that the world is not as we see it. The world is as we believe it. Chag Sameach.